Welcome to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan. I'm pastor here. Uh, we're currently in a series entitled Colony. Um, and the really, the beautiful thing about this series is our, kind of the summary of it is not so much a statement as it is a question. You know, a lot of times the way that in which Jesus taught was through questions and through stories and through kind of somewhat confusing little statements that didn't so much give people a nice, neat little package to walk away with, but actually challenged them to start thinking in different ways. And that's why so often Jesus would say, those who have ears, let them hear. That it's those who are kind of tuned in to what's really going on um, that are able to dig in. And the beauty of that is it invites us into deeper mystery and also revelation. So our, our kind of statement for this colony series is, what does it mean for us to be the people of God in the 21st century. In Orlando, Florida, in 2016, what does it mean for us to be God's people, to be God's family? And so we started a few weeks ago, um, and I'm continuing tonight. My, see, my sermon tonight is entitled, The Two Things You Should Never Talk About at the Dinner Table. Um, now, does anybody want to take a guess at what those two things are? Politics. <laughs> big, bigger picture, politics and... Religion. I asked that question of somebody earlier this week, and they said, uh, sex and money? I was like, no, those are the two things you never talk about in the bedroom. But we're talking about the two things that you never talk about at the dinner table. And I think, in a way, that it's a very southern idea that we don't want to be rude, and so we don't bring up things that kind of often pit um, fa usually family members together. I don't know if you've ever had those nightmarish uh, Thanksgiving scenarios where someone happens to mention who they're voting for or someone makes an offhanded comment and then it just explodes everywhere. Um, I actually didn't grow up in that kind of environment. I think for us, my family being immigrants, we came from a country, Northern Ireland, where religion and politics were so much at the core of who we were. I even remember being about nine years old and visiting my grandparents and being at the playground and other little kids coming up and immediately asking me the question, are you Protestant or are you Catholic? And those are two very loaded terms in our culture. And it actually has very little to do with what you believe. There's this uh, joke that someone says, are you Protestant or are you Catholic? Well, I'm an atheist. Okay, well, are you Protestant atheist or a Catholic atheist? But we came out of a culture where religion and politics were intimately connected and were at the center of discussion. They were at the center of how human beings arrange each other and interact with each other. Um, and so coming from that, it was always part of our dinner table discussion. Uh, but it wasn't long before I realized that that was actually not normal for a lot of people. These are two subjects um, that folks tend to shy away from. Um, but what I'm so excited and compelled by this series is it gives us an opportunity to go into some new territory and to begin to ask questions, not necessarily coming to conclusions, but asking questions in our community that are asking of us, what does it mean to participate, to have faith, to pursue God together, and to keep the conversation going? Um, and so that's really what we're going to be focusing in on tonight. So let's pray, and then we'll really get into it. Uh, so, Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth um, that you're here with us. You're for us and you're not against us, Lord. Father, I thank you that that reality guides everything else that we're going to talk about, Lord. That even when things feel uh, confusing uh, or they feel jarring um, or they just feel like it doesn't really fit into where we're currently at, um, the truth is still that you're with us and that you're advocating for us, that Christ Jesus even now is advocating for each one of us at your right hand, uh, that your spirit within each of us is advocating for us, is sticking up for us, is encouraging us. We thank you for that, Lord. I just pray that tonight we come before you with open hands, um, just willing to see what you have to say to us about the time and place in which we live and to receive that as the gift that it really is. We pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. And so my, my kind of main point, the thing to me that upon which everything else hangs is this. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Now you can take Caesar and you can put in any other name or organization that you want. But it's important for us to recognize as Christians, this is central to our faith. You know, that a lot of times what we're given in the postmodern world is that there's all these different philosophies and religions and ways of being in the world, and they're kind of laid out in front of us, and we get to pick and choose the things that work best for us. I recently heard um, a discussion 
uh, a politician was talking about her faith in the public arena. And she said it was odd how many people ask her, how much does your faith influence your political decisions that you make? She was in uh, Australian Parliament. She was saying this so strange because, you know, for a Christian, our faith is kind of a totality. It's the picture of, of everything that we are. It's not that we lay, we lay out our faith and then who we are in the public sphere and who we are in the private, and they all sit on the same table. But rather for us as Christians, we perceive Jesus as Lord is the statement upon which all of the other statements precipitate in the way that we choose to interact with them. That statement, Jesus is Lord, transcends religion. It transcends politics. It transcends economics. It transcends our relationships. It transcends our work environment. And it informs all of those things that we make, the decisions that we make as Christians, whether it's our normal, everyday, personal decisions, or it's our decisions together as the people of God in the global uh, arena. And so I want us to kind of look at what does Jesus is Lord specifically mean for us when we talk about politics? And like I said, I'm so excited because we don't get to talk about this stuff so much. And I think it's so appropriate that we're examining this even now where our current um, culture uh, is headed and all of the discussions that we're having anyway. So what I want us to do uh, first is just to briefly examine those two words, religion and politics. I want us to talk about where it is that we find ourselves as Christians in terms of our allegiances and then talk about how we actually interact with the governments of the world. So let's begin with this. Religion and politics aren't dirty words. Amen? Religion and politics aren't dirty words. I don't know if you're entirely convinced of that. It's okay. I'm not saying you have to agree with me. I'm just subtly implying it over and over and over again and more I say these things. I believe that these religion and politics are actually very neutral terms. They have definitions. They stood the test of time. But they're very subjective in the way that we approach them. I think oftentimes we find in Christianity especially, we throw out words because they've been poisoned by human influence. I think we see this a lot in our culture as well. And we're looking for new words but perhaps it's worth sometimes us slowing down and fighting for the words that are there and seeking to sap the poison out of them. But the religion and politics are actually neutral terms. It's the way in which those things have been presented to us that make them positive or negative. Both of these tend to have negative connotations for us. So let's begin with religion. So this is the definition that I've come to um, over the course of my life. I think especially growing up in the Anglican church, uh, which is very uh, liturgical. Um, it, religion is a word that was never necessarily offered to me in a negative place, but I definitely understand why people take it negatively. And so this is a definition that I've come to. Religion is the space in which we explore and express our faith. The word religion comes from Latin religio, which means to reconnect, to bind or to tie together. And I love that because what it's saying is that it kind of gives shape and feel and direction for our faith. So the fact that, that all of us agreed at some point to gather in this space at eight o'clock at night on a Sunday means we're religious. The fact that we all just sang the same song that somebody else has written means we're religious. Because these are uh, exercises, they're activities that we've all come together in agreement. We're going to do these things in order to, to give shape and, and expression and exploration to our faith. And I think a lot of times when we say, I understand that sentiment, I'm spiritual but not religious. But I would actually push back on that. That I think it's actually the religious bit that gives context to the spiritual bit. Now, what can happen very often is that the religion gets ahead of the reason why we have those things in the first place. And if it becomes more about our actions or doing the right thing, yes, we're in dire straits. But the truth is that Jesus was a religious leader, and he was a very religious man. He woke up every morning, and he went through um, the prayers that every good Jew was going through in the morning. He went to synagogue. Um, they read uh, the Torah, and they discussed it, and they wrestled it. Um, and he invites us into those same things. But for Jesus, religion always had that direction of intimacy with God. And so in our prayer lives, in our worship lives, in our communal lives, in our lives with the things that we do in secret, all of those acts, these sacred acts, are religious acts. 
And so religion isn't something that we just do in church, but it's also something that we take out with us in the public sphere. If it's about how we express and explore our faith, that's something that we also do publicly. And that brings us to the word politics. So politics are how humans are organized in a society. The word comes from the Greek polis, which just means of or for the people. Now, a lot of times we push against the idea of the word religious, but a lot of times we really push against politics. And we say, well, I just, I don't really have any time for politics, or politics is an absolute mess. But again, that's where very often we're tainting a neutral term with how it's been presented or misrepresented to us in the past. But I'm going to say something that's very jarring and abrasive uh, for, for many of us in here, and, and I want to give you permission to feel that. It's okay. Um, I think a lot of times when we choose not to be political, it actually betrays the fact that the systems that are in place favor our tribe. So let me refine that a little bit. If you're white, middle class, in your 20s, you have a college degree, you have some sort of a job, you have a roof over your, house, your head, you're in a place of luxury where you don't have to be political because the systems that have been established in the world are actually working in your favor. You see a lot of times for people that are oppressed, or are in minorities, or are under fascist regimes, or whatever it might be, every day is inherently political. Because the, the, their freedom and the way they're able to be a human being is directly affected by the laws that have been established and the systems that have been established by mankind. And I want to challenge our church, especially as a church that compared to the rest of the world actually has a lot of privilege. And I'm not diminishing. I think it, we have gifts. All of these things have been gifts unto us but we have to begin to look outside of ourselves and start to question if the systems that are in place, just because they favor our tribe, our skin color, our ethnic class or socioeconomic class, maybe they still need to be challenged. And perhaps that's why God has actually put us in this position, in this time and place. And so to act in the public sphere is not only a religious act, but it's also for us to participate in politics, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, uh, the jobs that we will and will not take. And so there's this fundamental conne political connection and connotation to our faith. That if we are people who are guided by this idea that Jesus is Lord, that influences our politics. And we can't not be political. But it's just a question of where and how. And so why are those words so often tainted for us in our contemporary society? There's a lot of different reasons, but I wanted to hone in on this, this, this one. There's this overwhelming desire to belong, that human beings are born with this overwhelming desire to belong. Consider in Genesis chapter 2, when God creates Adam, what does he say? It's not good for man to be alone, because God recognizes something in man that he needs community. He needs others. He needs a tribe. He needs a group in order to find himself and so one of my favorite um, authors, Jean Vanier, by the way, my second favorite book in the entire world behind the Bible, and I know that I'm like legally obligated to say that, but it's true, uh, Becoming Human by Jean Vanier. I buy this book for everybody. Please go get a copy of it. It will change your life. But this is what he says. Belonging is important to our growth to independence. Even further, it's important to our growth to inner freedom and maturity. It is only through belonging that we can break out of the shell of individualism and self-centeredness that both protects and isolates us. And so our desire to belong to a group is a beautiful thing. It's actually how we've been created. But here's the catch. When we idolize our desire to belong, when we idolize belonging to the group or the team or the tribe, what we end up doing is giving over too much of ourselves for the sake of belonging. This is where we can find ourselves in cultish situations. But we give over so much of who we are and who God's called us to be in order to belong. And we begin to perform in order to feel accepted and loved. We're going to look in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8 and get a great example of this with Israel. So in Deuteronomy, God had spoken to Moses and said, there's going to come a time when Israel wants a king. And it is so very important that they don't do that because I want to be Israel's king. 
And so along came the time of the judges where God would establish someone for a very specific time to rescue Israel, but always to bring them back under his kingship. And that worked for a few generations, uh, but then things go awry. Look at 1 Samuel 8, uh, beginning in verse 4. It says this, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways, which is a really great way to get what you want. By the way, if you're, if you're just really buttering somebody up to come and say, hey, you're old and your kids are stupid. Now, appoint a king to lead us, and this is the key, appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. You know, I used to be an anarchist. I'm going to go ahead and confess that. And then for a little while, I'd say I was probably democratic. And then for a little while, I was a libertarian socialist. And now I'm a theocrat. And it's probably the most, quote-unquote, impractical version of government. But the government where God is king. And you see, the, the struggle here was that Israel looked around at what everybody else was doing and their desire to belong with all of the other nations said, oh, that's what power looks like. That's what influence looks like. So we need to have our version of that thing in order to be a great nation. And it broke the heart of Samuel and it broke the heart of God because they wanted to replace him as king. And I think that happens to us so much in our contemporary society on the political sphere is that we want to set up kings in our lives, whether it's in our immediate community or if it's on the national platform, that are going to organize our lives and save the day when it's God the whole time that has been claiming that he's king. And I wonder if that idolization of belonging ever goes away for us as human beings, especially when it comes to us abandoning the ways of God. Consider even when you're in high school. Everybody get yourself, I know it's uncomfortable. You're sitting at the lunch table and it's, you're in 10th grade, okay? Holy Spirit, guide us through places of fear and ambiguity. Yea, though I walk through the valley of 10th grade, I shall fear no evil. When I taught high school, I saw this in very stark terms, this desire to belong and how we idolize that. And I saw essentially two kinds of kids. There were the kids that looked at the crowd and then gave over everything they were in order to belong. Okay? So what did we do? We have to wear all the same clothes. We have to speak the same way. We have to listen to the same music. We have to have the same attitude towards our parents and school. And we gave over everything we are so that we would belong and we'd feel accepted and we'd feel loved. And that was kid A. And kid B was the kid who looked at the crowd and what everybody else was doing and did everything they could to stand apart. When I was a teacher, admittedly, those were the kids that I had a real soft spot for. But they'd look at the crowd and they'd, they'd, whatever they're doing, I'm going to do the opposite. The problem with both of those is that they still idolize the idea of belonging because they're looking at the crowd, they're looking at the flock and making their decisions on who they are based on that. But see, part of what it is for us as Christians is to come out of that understanding of how we belong or stand out and realign our definition of who we are to God and recognizing that we're part of his people. And so for us as Christians, what is our primary definer? Where do we find ourselves? What's our group and our tribe? And so that brings me to my second point. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, of King Jesus. I mentioned in the, in the very first sermon I did in this series that Paul in Philippians says that we are citizens of heaven. And there's a way to translate that word citizens that refines it even more that to say we are the colony of heaven or we are the outpost of heaven. And that's what this whole series has been about, that God establishes his people as a colony in a foreign land, kind of picking up that language from Peter that we're, we're to be exiles and aliens in a foreign land. Or that Paul says, we're not to conform to the culture around us, be, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we find ourselves moving our citizenship from citizens of the world to being citizens in the kingdom of heaven, which inherently means that we have a king and his name is Jesus. You can't have a kingdom if you don't have a king. You know, a couple of years ago, we did this series called Kingdom Empire, where we talked about the fabric of the kingdom of God and how that stands um, up against the empires of the world. In this past 
uh, year, we've been talking a lot about family living in heavenly reality. And now we're talking about being the colony or the people of God. And the underlying theme and so much of what the Lord's been weaving together in our community is that the core of God's story is that we have been made his people by Jesus's work, not our own. Because when human beings are left to our own devices, what do we do? We categorize one another, we create hierarchies of value and performance and excellence, and we divide ourselves by ethnic lines and socioeconomic lines and political lines and by the color of our skin. And that's what we do. That's how we order ourselves when we're in control. But see, when each of us came into that real and living encounter with God for the first time, our citizenship went from that world, that place of violence and division, into the kingdom of God. That it wasn't about us and our prejudices that define who people are and who we're attached to, but it's by the work of Jesus. And so each of us have been rescued and claimed and cleaned up and set apart as this colony of heaven. And this is the fascinating thing about our citizenship is that we're still, for many of us, learning how to plant both of our feet in the kingdom. I was talking to my mom earlier this week about when we moved from Northern Ireland to here, and what were some, even though it's an English-to-English culture, and there's a lot of similarity, what were some of those kind of little hiccups early on that, that were a little unnatural? And we just talked through a couple of them. One of them was, was this. When, when, when you were growing up, um, which way were you t- told to look before crossing the street? Everybody do in your head. Right? You go left, right, left. And why do you look left? Because the cars are coming from the right. They come from the left on the right side of the road, right? But the way that as a child, when I was growing up in Belfast City, I had to start looking right and then left and then right because the cars are on the left side of the road. This is why on um, Winston Churchill's first journey uh, to the United States in New York City, he stepped out in front of traffic and got hit by a car and broke his leg because as an Englishman, he was trained to look the wrong way. So even though we were here and we were planted in the kingdom of the, the empire of the United States, there were still certain things that we had to get used to. There's another, another example. In Irish, there's this word, crack. And it's C-R-A-I-C. It's an Irish word. And it means, uh, where are the good times? Where's the fun? But we recognize here you can't go up to someone and say, hey, where's the crack? <laughs> Especially when you live as close to Detroit as we did. It has a whole different connotation. So even though we were here and we were planted, there was still this time of learning the culture, of adjusting. And that's what it's like for us as Christians. We have been claimed, not because of us, but because of Jesus, into the colony of God. But our lives are about learning the language of heaven, learning the, the attitudes and the customs of heaven. And sometimes it's a little bit awkward, but it doesn't mean that all of a sudden we're not citizens of the kingdom. That's so much of what the Christian life is. And so King Jesus is the lens through which we perceive everything else in our lives if we truly believe that we are citizens of heaven and he is our king. And so Jesus teaches us how to live grounded in the colony of heaven as resident aliens. And this is the meeting of religion and politics because they're both categories of what it means for God to be king. Now, if I was in the first century and I said some of these phrases, if I said, so-and-so is Lord, if I said he's the prince of peace and the savior of the world, if I said his birth was the evangelion, the good news, if I said this is marking the arrival of his king, who would you think I was talking about? Jesus. But... If you said that anywhere in the Roman Empire, everyone would ascribe all of those phrases to Caesar, the king of Rome. Caesar was Lord. Caesar was the prince of peace. Caesar was the savior of the world. Whenever Caesar was born, it was the good news that was announced. And there was always talk about the arrival of the kingdom of Caesar. And so when the the writers of the New Testament in the Gospels and Paul and Peter and all these other guys When they're writing and they say those things, they're taking political language in the world as it was, and they're subverting the meaning of those things and and inherently saying Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Jesus is the Prince of Peace and the Savior of the world, and Caesar is not. And so there's always been this political connotation to the gospel that we don't always read into it today. And so 
how are we called as citizens of the kingdom of heaven to relate to the governments of the world? We're going to be looking tonight at Romans chapter 13, which I think is one of actually the most highly contested and abused passages in Scripture. One of my current favorite theologians, Stanley Hauerwas, said this, Most people don't know how to read the Bible because they're Americans first and Christians second. Whoops. You know, Romans 13 is a really good example of how that happens. That when we grow up in, um, in a world that gives us a certain set of values and understandings, and believe me, I'm 32, I'm beyond the whole bashing American culture. Like, I'm really thankful to be here, and there are so many beautiful things in our culture. I'm over that, okay? Um, but when we read the Bible through the lens, first and foremost, of being an American, or wherever your ethnicity uh, or your nationality might place you, it becomes very difficult to interpret something like Romans 13. And that's why so often it's a passage that has been used to prop up very evil and broken systems of government. Even in Nazi Germany, this was one of the ones that the church pointed to and said, no, 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 we're supposed to submit to governmental authorities and just trust them because God's established those things. And so this is all tainted by something that happened in 312 AD when Emperor Constantine declared Christianity the state religion, which sounds really great. But up until that point, for three centuries, um, Christi Christians had been persecuted by the Roman Empire. One of the early church fathers, Tertullian, he said it was the blood of the martyrs that was the seed of the church. That there was such a radical devotion to the message of, the, of Jesus and the message of peace that even when Rome killed our, 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 the first fruit of our uh, family, our brothers and sisters in the first and second centuries, people came rushing to the message because they said if they're willing to die for it and this joyfully, it must be true. But everything changed when Emperor Constantine said, okay, now everybody by default is a Christian. Because it is not about having a lived-in real encounter with Jesus. It's just you are by default. You've been born into it now. Maybe you get baptized. You pay lip service to it. But it became a way for the government to control people. And I don't think that we're too far divorced from that, even 1,700 years on. I think so many of us in Christianity are still stuck in that Constantinian idea that government and religion Faith and politics are intimately tied together, and we come to something like Romans 13, and it really messes up how we read it. So what I want us to do is to first look at the context for Romans 13, and then we're going to dive into that very contentious passage. A couple of weeks ago, um, in my sermon on nonviolence, I used uh, the tail end of Romans 12, and that's where I want us to go first. So Romans 12 um, is about what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? What does it mean for you to give over everything you are um, to the glory of God and to his will and desire. And I think that Romans 12 really becomes the lens by which we step into Romans 13. So let's begin in verse 19 in Romans. He says this, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And this is the, this right here, this is the linchpin. This is the key. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Romans 12, this is one of those passages we love in sometimes, again, that American first, Christian second mentality where we put the little asterisk. So it says, do not repay evil. We go, unless they really deserve it. Do not repay evil, unless we're talking about war. Do not repay evil, unless we're really trying to establish democracy over there because they really need it. We need to go help them. And somehow that means that we bring out guns and bombs. But he says, do not repay evil for evil. And then he says this very strange thing. Do leave room for God's wrath. Leave room for God's wrath. Now, what happens so often for us in the West is that we take this idea of God's wrath and we start thinking about Zeus, okay? We start thinking that God is angry and he's up on top of a mountain and he's got a quiver full of lightning bolts and he can't wait for us to do something wrong before he fires them at us and shocks us into submission. 
And that's often what we think about with God's wrath. But if you go back to Romans 1 and 2, Paul begins by telling the story of Israel continuing to walk away from God. And it says that they started to pursue all of the lusts of their heart and their human desires. And three times when Paul's talking about the wrath of God, he says, therefore God gave them over to the evil desires of their heart. Okay? Therefore God gave them over to the evil desires of their heart. And that, my friends, is the wrath of God. I've said it before, but I think that the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son is perhaps the most important piece of scripture because it it interprets so many others. And if you recall the story, the younger son comes to the father and says, give me my inheritance early. And what does the father do? He gives it to him. And I think that is the wrath of the father. Now, if God is love and every action of God is love, God is not divided, God is not schizophrenic, every action of God is love, how do we determine what wrath is? God's wrath is this, I love you so much that I will let you get what you want. This is what Paul's saying in Romans 1, therefore he handed them over to the evil desires of their heart. I love you so much that I will let you stick your hands in the flame. I love you so much that I will let you walk away from me and pursue the things that you think will make you happy. That's the wrath of God. Now what happens in the story of the prodigal, the son finds himself in the distant and foreign land far away from his father's house and he's run out of all of money and everything that he thought was going to make him happy and define him, he realized it was all fleeting. And so he turns in repentance to come back to the father. And the beauty of the heart of the father is that he doesn't even wait for the son to come back and says, ho-hum, I told you so, and he wags his finger. No, the father runs out of the gate to meet him and to bring him back into his home. In Romans 2, Paul says, therefore, oh gosh, I'm forgetting it now, and I just said it in the last one. Uh, Why do you show contempt for the patience and kindness of God? Do you not realize that it's God's kindness and patience that leads you to repentance? And so God's wrath and God's kindness are actually intimately tied together. And so in Romans 12, when he says, do not repay evil for evil, but leave room for God's wrath, he's saying the brokenness of the world, the way the world is in the places that have not acknowledged that Jesus is Lord, God is going to use that brokenness and let us pursue those things so that we realize the error of our ways and we come back to him because his ways are so much more beautiful. And so God's wrath looks like us choosing to walk away from him and him letting us do so because he loves us. But God's wrath is always restorative. God's wrath is always in the hopes that we will turn around and come back to him, that he would define us again, that we would be in his household, that we would sit at his table and sup with him. And that think in that light, the wrath of God is so beautiful that it's his kindness and his love for us that he lets us walk away from him and get what we want. And so that has to be the lens and the things that we gather into ourselves as we jump into Romans 13. Let's take a look at this. And there's three words here that I need us to really define. Establishment, submission, and honor. We're going to look at those uh, briefly, but I want to read this passage. So going from this idea of do not overcome um, evil with evil, but overcome it with good, he says this. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Uh, Does that feel icky? Doesn't that feel weird? Oh, it doesn't feel right. What does it mean that God has established and instituted these things? You know, a lot of times, again, when we read it from our nationality first, we are very happy to prop up that God has established our government, but we only apply it to our government. If this is, if it means that God has set up these governments on purpose the way that they are, what about North Korea? What about the Taliban? What about Nazi Germany? Because if we take the word established to mean that God determined this is how it's going to look and I'm going to put these people in power, 
then God put Hitler in power. God ordained the rise of Nazi Germany, and God made Germany kill six million Jews, which was actually some of the justification that they used in the church and the state during World War II. What that really means is that God established this American government and he established uh, Nazism in Germany and fascism in Italy and then he took all of these competing pieces and he smashed them all together for his glory. And that doesn't seem to make sense, especially with what we've just seen. And this is why it's so important that we read everything through the lens of Jesus. And that we read it through, what does God's wrath really look like? If it's really him saying, I love you so much, I'm going to let you walk out into the brokenness of the world and experience that so you'll come back, we can change well how we understand the word establish. In Greek, it's the word tasso. Everybody say tasso. It's, that's also a sausage that you can find in Louisiana, but that's not what doesn't apply here. But the word tasso, it means establish, but it also means to categorize or order or almost to file. And so what it means for God to establish governing bodies is that God, through free will, allows human beings to organize themselves into violent systems, and then God uses that brokenness for his glory. He uses the broken systems of the world that are intended for evil, and he turns around and makes them good. Now let's continue in verse 3. Rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer, whether they realize it or not. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. And so what does he mean in this idea of submission? If establishment is that God allows the broken systems of the world and he turns those outcomes, what we're really talking about here is God's sovereignty. Again, when we think sovereignty, sometimes we get into that place. We say God has established every step in human history and we're just puppets on a string that are going through it because God is so much in control. The problem with that line of thinking then is, well, yes, God established and ordained Nazi Germany. God established and ordained uh, what's going on in, in North Korea. God established and ordained all of these places of overwhelming evil. And my problem with that is that that God doesn't look a lot like Jesus. That God is a tyrant. That God is a terrible person who seems to have no heart or care for humanity. But if Jesus is the best thing that God has ever said, that God looks like Jesus and God has always looked like Jesus, then it dramatically changes how we understand these things. And so God's sovereignty is not about how he has ordained and made every decision in history, but it's this. God's sovereignty is his ability to turn curses into blessings. God does not ordain the event, but he dramatically can change the outcome. Think about your personal story. Think about the places of of brokenness and pain you were at when God met you. Those things were intended to be curses for you. All of our addictions and our brokenness and the, the fear of rejection and all of these things, they were intended to be curses that kept us from our true humanity. But God in his sovereignty came in and met us in those places of brokenness and turned those curses into blessings. Not because the events have changed, but because the outcome has changed. And that's his beauty, that's his sovereignty, and that's the God that is revealed in Jesus. Think about when the guys see the, the blind guy and they say, hey Jesus, was this guy, is he blind because of his sin or his father's sin? Jesus is like, no, this is so that God's glory can be revealed because I'm about to turn this curse into a blessing. And those are the stories that we tell each other. We tell the stories of the brokenness and the pain and the desperation because they're the best evidence of God's heart. And so we don't have to have this schizophrenic God who's completely sovereign and ends up being a tyrant or is completely loving but has no real control over anything. But we end up finding this place where his sovereignty is in his ability to turn curses into blessings. And if that's true on the personal sphere for each one of us, it's also true on the global scale when we're talking about governments. And so God permits the broken systems of the world to do their thing, but then he uses those violent systems of the world for his purposes. 
And so God orders the world through reflected good. That when you see good in a government, you're seeing God. But he also brings good out of the intended evil of those things. And here's the thing. Every single government that has ever existed, including ours, will be held accountable to the standards of heaven and to the standards of Jesus. Napoleon said this, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. The truth of the matter is that the American empire will fall. It's going to fall. Every empire has fallen. Egypt, fallen. Babylon, fallen. Rome, fallen. Empires come and go, but the kingdom of God is forever. The kingdom of God continues and it only increases. And we are citizens of that kingdom. And so how do we interact with government? If that's how God perceives it, how are we called to interact with it? First is this, deriving from Romans 12. Christians cannot take up the sword and exact private vengeance. This is, again, where we like to place the asterisks, and I would encourage you, go back and listen to my sermon on nonviolence being central to the gospel. But oftentimes when we take up the sword, we are betraying the fact that we don't really trust that God is in control, especially when we can't see it. And not only that, but I believe that Christians are against no one. Christians are always for human beings because God revealed in Jesus was always for human beings. Paul says in Ephesians 6 this, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. As human beings, as Christians, we must separate out the idea of government from, from the people that are established in it. It is very easy for us to hate other people when they're just concepts. And I think that really brings us to understanding that submission, when Paul says that we are to submit to government authorities, he does not mean passive agreement or obedience. This is a word that has just so been misunderstood. The other place is in Ephesians chapter 5 where it says, wives, submit to your husbands. And it's been used in that same way. Wives, passively agree with everything that your husband says and just obey. Is that right, Greg? No. Thank you. Ephesians, see, when we ignore Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so what is submission if it's not passive agreement and obedience? Submission is sacrificial love. Submission is us giving over everything we are in order to see someone else come to understand their own humanity and to have that steadfast commitment to them. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, whenever someone asks you to take their pack one mile, carry it two. That was an inherently political statement. The Roman soldiers of the day were, were told, you can go up to any Jewish citizen and you can ask them to carry your backpack for them. This is like a 50-pound backpack. But you can only do it for one mile. And so when Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, carry it two, there's a place of submission and protest simultaneously. Because that political act is forcing the other person to reconcile the fact that you're a human being, and so are they. And it opens up dialogue. And so it doesn't push human beings apart, but it actually brings them closer together. I think that leads us into that final word, honor. So in verse 6, Paul says this, This is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And so how do we define honor? Honor always affirms and cherishes someone else's humanity. And so as Christians, we're not against anyone. We're actually for everyone. But the way in which we hold that forness for other human beings means that there are unjust laws. And so we uphold positions in our government that are actually reflect the heart of God when it comes to caring for other human beings. 
but we call into question by our faithful presence any kind of unjust law that seeks to oppress or diminish other people. This is the beauty of the civil disobedience movement led by Martin Luther King. That he, through civil disobedience and through protest, was forcing the American government to recognize humanity. What he was actually saying was in the Constitution, when it says all men are created equal, that does not mean that I am three-fifths of a human being. You know, we believed that until the 1960s. We held that in law. Black people are three-fifths of a human being. And it was Martin Luther King's submission to government through civil disobedience, recognizing the humanity of everyone in the White House and in Congress and in the courts that ruled the land that also challenged them to see human beings the way that God sees them. And it becomes this beautiful prophetic voice that echoes the prophets of the Old Testament that stood up for social justice. And so in that Romans 12 thing, we overcome evil with love. We are part of the refining fire of the world. As Christians, we have the opportunity to become the grain of sand that irritates the oyster, that makes the pearl. So we've been given a spirit of advocacy, not accusation. So we need to say yes to things in our society and insofar as they reflect God's law. But we also need to have the courage to be able to stand up against the things of man's law that do not size up to God's law. And we cannot expect the government to do the church's job. You know, I don't care whether or not you vote. That's not really interesting to me. What's really interesting to me is why you have made, you're making the decision that you are. And I think that that's what's so key for us, that oftentimes as Christians, we want to legislate our faith. On the liberal side, there's often talk about care for the poor and the lower classes, and that's beautiful. That's the heart of God. But what often happens in the liberal arguments is that we want the government to do that so that we don't have to. And on the conservative side, we see a lot of times people uh, vote based on who will uphold laws against abortion or seeking to eradicate abortion altogether. And that's great. And I would, I would say, from my personal opinion, that is also God's heart and God's desire. But we don't make laws and then say that back up and say we're done. Because it's not the creative response of the church. And if we think that just legislating our faith is all we're called to do, then we're abdicating our role as the church and offering it to the government. I've said before that the Christian colony is the place where we begin to instill Christian imagination to meet the world the way that it actually is and to be a faithful presence. And so what, what the heck do we do? This is a lot of information, amen? Anybody overwhelmed? I'm overwhelmed. I've been studying this for two weeks. Listen, you don't need to make any decisions tonight, okay? You don't have to walk away with any answers. I, in fact, I hope that you walk away with lots of questions because these are the kind of conversations that I want us to have in our community. But this is what I would send you away with. Get educated pray, and then get involved. First of all, get educated. In the words of the song, what's going on? What's happening? We need to open our eyes and we need to see what's going on in the world. We need to trust that we won't crumble under the pressure of seeing brokenness, whether it's in our city or in our nation or on a global platform but we need to begin to get educated on what's happening. And that leads to the next thing, which I think is our most powerful response as Christians if we really believe that God is in control, and that's to pray. And the beauty of prayer is as much that it forms who we are in the way that we think as much as it does in, in petitioning God to see the realities of heaven come on earth. And so in your prayer to say, God, here's this thing that's going on. What do you have to say about it? What's your heart for this thing? And I think that's the difference between us bearing the burdens of the world and actually interceding for the world and releasing those things back to God. And then the final thing, to get involved. What's the thing that you see? Where's the place of injustice or oppression? Where's the place where you know the heart of the Father is crying out? 
and you almost can't help but be drawn to that place because that's your calling. That's why you're on this planet. And to get to pray and then get involved is to ask the question, what can I do to be a faithful presence here, to be the hands and feet of Jesus and to uphold those things that reflect the reality of who God is, but also to lovingly submit and protest and reject the things that are not his heart and to see God's kingdom come through us, that heaven on earth and that the kingdom is always advancing. So I want to invite you to stand with me, please. And we're going to spend some time tonight just praying, just having that, that boldness to open our eyes to the way the world really is, to not feel overwhelmed by that, but to actually pray into those things. And the beauty is, like I said, we pray for people, not against people. This is why 50% of the time it doesn't work when you pray for your team to win. Because God doesn't honor those kinds of prayers. I don't think. Maybe he does. But we always pray for people. And so we're going to spend some time, and I want you to pray out loud. There's, some, there's a really unique power to when we pray out loud as opposed to just in our heads. Amen? And so I want us to pray for the city of Orlando and for Mayor Buddy Dyer. I want us to pray for the state of Florida and our governor, Rick Scott. I want us to pray for the nation of the United States and for our president, Barack Obama, and for our Congress and for our Supreme Court justices. And I want us to have the boldness to see those things the way that God does and then pray his hope and glory into them and trust that that's going to stir up within us a conversation with God and with our community of how we get involved and how we are a faithful presence. So let's begin praying together. Jesus Christ, you are Lord of lords. You are king of all kings. Lord, there's coming a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord of all, through all, and in all. And so, Heavenly Father, I just invite you to open up the eyes of City Beautiful Church to see the world the way that you see it, that we would see the city of Orlando the way that you see it, that we would see the state of Florida the way that you see it, that we would see the nation of the United States the way that you do, that we would see the world the way that you do, Lord. And then instead of being buckled down by the, the the, the, the pressure and the oppression and the pain that we see. Lord, open our eyes to see those things the way that you can so that we can step in, that we can pray, that we can be your hands and your feet. Father God, I pray that any seeds that you have planted in our governmental authorities that along their journeys as individuals and as organizations, any seeds that you've planted of your goodness and your gospel, Lord, we declare that those things open up and blossom into the fruit of your kingdom. Lord, I pray as Christians, as the church, that we would put you as Lord first above all else, that we would see our citizenship in heaven as the main defining factor of who we really are. And that that would change the way that we interact with our society. That we would love it. That we would overcome evil with good. That we would submit in a way that people recognize our common humanity and our common Savior. Lord, I thank you for the giftedness of this moment. That you've crafted each of us to be in this place, in this time, in Orlando, Florida in 2016. That's not an accident, Lord. You have equipped us to be your faithful presence in the world. We thank you for that, Father. May all things be into your glory. We pray these in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Let's worship.